here's the final episode for book three. And I can understand if you spent more time this week in book three than in book four, because this is uh, packed with details. I'm picking up at 412E. Then in my opinion, they must be watched at every age to see if they're skillful guardians of this conviction and never under the influence of wizardry or force forget and thus banish the opinion that one must do what is best for the city. That's the conviction. What do you mean by banishment, he said. I'll tell you, I said. It looks to me as though an opinion departs from our minds either willingly or unwillingly. The departure of the false opinion from the man who learns otherwise is willing. That of every other true opinion is unwilling. I want you to notice banishment and this idea of becoming pariah and having that stone given to you and being told to leave the city. I understand the case of the willing departure, he said, but I need to learn about the unwilling. What? I said, don't you too believe that, that human beings are unwillingly deprived of good things and willingly of bad ones? Or isn't being deceived about the truth bad and to have the truth good? Or isn't it your opinion that to opine the things that are is to have the truth? What you say is correct, he said. And in my opinion, men are unwillingly deprived of true opinion. Don't they suffer this by being robbed, bewitched by wizards, or forced? Now, I don't understand again, he said. I'm afraid I'm speaking in the tragic way, I said. By the robbed, I mean those who are persuaded to change and those who forget, because in the one case, time... In the other, speech takes away their opinions unawares. Now, you surely understand. Please note here that sophists are being equated with robbers, those who can steal something with their words. Yes, then by the forest, I mean those whom some grief or pain causes to change their opinions. I understand that too, he said, and what you say is correct. And further, the bewitched, you too, I suppose, would say, are those who change their opinions either because they are charmed by pleasure or terrified by some fear. Yes, he said, that's because everything that deceives seems to bewitch. Now then, as I said a while ago, we must look for some men who are the best guardians of their conviction, uh, the, who are the best guardians of their conviction, that they must do what on each occasion seems best for the city. So we must watch them straight from childhood by setting them a task in which a man would most likely forget and be deceived out of such a conviction. And the man who has a memory and is hard to deceive must be chosen, and the one who's not must be rejected. Mustn't he? Yes. And again, they must be set to labors, pains, and contests in which these same things must be watched. Correct, he said. Then I said, we must also make them a competition for the third form, for wizardry. We must look on. Just as they lead colts to noises and confusions and observe if they are fearful, so these men, when they are young, must be brought to terrors, and then cast and turn into pleasures, testing them far more than gold in fire. If a man appears hard to bewitch and graceful in everything, a good guardian of himself and the music he was learning, proving himself to possess rhythm and harmony on all these occasions, such a man would certainly be most useful to himself and the city. And the one who on each occasion among the children and youths and among the men is tested and comes through untainted must be appointed ruler of the city and guardian. And he must be given honors, both while living and when dead, and must be allotted the greatest prizes in burial and the other memorials. And the, other, and the man who is not of this sort must be rejected. The selection and appointment of the rulers and guardians is, in my opinion, Glaucon, 
I said, something like this, not described precisely, but by way of a model. That, he said, is the way it looks to me, too. Isn't it then truly most correct to call these men complete guardians? They can guard over enemies from without and friends from within. So the ones will not wish to do harm and the others will be unable to. The young, whom we were calling guardians up to now, we shall call auxiliaries and helpers of the ruler's convictions. In my opinion, he said, that is what they should be called. Could we, I said, somehow contrive one of those lies that come into being in case of need, of which we were just now speaking, some one noble lie to persuade, in the best case, even the rulers, but if not them, the rest of the city? What sort of a thing, he said. Nothing new, I said, but a Phoenician thing, which has already happened in many places before, as the poets assert and have caused others to believe, but one that has not happened in our own time. And I don't know if it could. One that requires a great deal of persuasion. How like a man who's hesitant to speak you are, he said. Mm, you'll think my hesitation's quite appropriate, too, I said, when I do speak. Speak, he said, and don't be afraid. I shall speak. And yet I don't know what I'll use for daring or speeches in telling it. And I'll attempt to persuade first the rulers and the soldiers and the rest of the city that the rear of education we gave them were like dreams. They only thought they were undergoing all that was happening to them, while in truth, at that time, they were under the earth within, being fashioned and reared themselves, and their arms and other tools being crafted. When the job has been completely finished, then the earth, which is their mother, sent them up. And now, as though the land they are in were a mother and nurse, they must plan for and defend it if anyone attacks, and they must think of the other citizens as brothers and born of the earth. Friends, I don't know about you, but this is a pretty preposterous noble lie. So let's see how it's received. It wasn't, he said, for nothing that you were for so long ashamed to tell the lie. It was indeed appropriate, I said. All the same, hear out the rest of the tale. All of you in the city are certainly brothers, we shall say to them in telling the tale, but uh, the God in fashioning those of you who are competent to rule mixed gold in at their birth. Mm. This is why they are most honored, in auxiliaries, silver, and iron, and bronze, and the farmers, and those other craftsmen. So, because you're all related, although for the most part you produce offspring like yourselves, it sometimes happens that a silver child will be born from a golden parent, and a golden child from a silver parent, and similarly all the others from each other. Hence, the God commands the rulers first and foremost to be of nothing uh, such good guard to be a, to be of nothing such good guardians and to keep over nothing so careful a watch as the children seeing which of these metals is mixed in their souls and if a child of theirs should be born with an admixture of bronze or iron by no matter of means are they to take pity on it but shall assign the proper value to its nature and thrust it out among the craftsmen or the farmers and again if from these men one should naturally grow who has an admixture of gold or silver, they will honor such ones and lead them up, and some to the guardian group, other to the others to the auxiliary, believing that there is an oracle that the, uh, that the city will be destroyed when an iron or bronze man is its guardian. So, have you some device for persuading them of this tale? None at all, he said. For these men themselves, however for their sons and their successors and the rest of humans, human beings uh, who come afterwards. Well, even that would be good for making them care 
more for the city and one another. I said, for I understand pretty much what you mean. Well, then, this will go where the report of men shall lead it. And when we have armed these earth-born men, let's bring them forth led by the rulers. When they've come, let them look out for the fairest place in the city, for military camp, from which they could most control those within. If anyone were not willing to obey the laws and ward off those from without, if an enemy like a wolf should attack the flock, when they've made the camp and sacrificed to whom they ought, let them make sleeping places. Or how should it be? Well, like that, he said. Won't these places be such as to provide adequate shelter in both winter and summer? Yes, of course, he said. For you seem to me to mean houses. Yes, I said. Those are the soldiers, not money makers. How, he said, do you mean to distinguish the one from the other? I shall try to tell you, I said. Surely the most terrible and shameful thing of all is for shepherds to rear dogs as auxiliaries for the flocks, in such way that due to licentiousness, hunger, or some other bad habit, they themselves undertake to do harm to the sheep, and instead of dogs, become like wolves. Terrible, he said, of course. Mustn't we in every way guard against the auxiliaries doing anything like that to the citizens? since they are stronger than they, becoming like savage masters instead of well-meaning allies? Yes, he said, we must. And wouldn't they have been provided with the greatest safeguard if they had been really finely educated? But they have been, he said. And I said, it's not fit to be too sure about that, my dear Glaucon. However, it is fit to be sure about what we were saying a while ago, that they must get the right education, whatever it is, if they're going to have what's most important for being tame with each other and those who are guarded by them. So I leave you with this thought. Are you getting the right education or are you being raised by wolves?